Oh, I read that. Thank you very much. What if this is as good as it gets? Oh. It's the Midnight Disease. Sam Dingman coming to you on the Electro Voice RE20 via the Apollo Twin X. Not quite fully analog tones, but digital will have to do. Here on a Friday morning in Wellfleet, Massachusetts, a warm welcome from the cool shores of Cape Cod, where I am, though not in the moon cabin, still sick and suffering. And pretty well convinced that that's not going to change. But I am trying, as ever, not to be afraid. Today on the show, a conversation with Steve Mallory, who, among other things, wrote the script for two Melissa McCarthy movies, Superintelligence and The Boss. Later in the show, of course, you will hear our trademarked Wild Card Wednesday segment. The segment so wild, we had to move it to Friday. This week on Wildcard Wednesday, a pair of troubadours gaze backward in benevolence at pursuing phantoms. But first, another dispatch from my nocturnal scribbles in the glorious gloom, better known as... Night Pages. Fountain pens are a lot like the writers that wield them. Sometimes the ink flows lustrous and free, and other times it's spotty and scattered, full of smearing and indiscernible blotches. Sometimes an air bubble forms somewhere behind the nib, and the ink gets completely blocked. Nothing comes out at all. Even when the ink is flowing, it only flows for a limited time. The inkwell must then be carefully refilled, a complicated and delicate process that requires patience and gentle handling to avoid long-term damage to the instrument. And beyond that, no matter how full the inkwell, the pen can only really perform under certain ideal conditions. A nice flat surface, a certain kind of paper. It's best if the temperature is not too cold. The nibs slowly bend and take shape according to the angle of the writer's hand. And once they're molded, it's tough to get them to work in any other position. Fountain pens are messy and high-maintenance. But when they're at their best, they make sentences seem like they're permanently stitched into the page. Every word seems to shimmer a little. In the 2020 film Superintelligence, Melissa McCarthy plays a former corporate executive named Carol Peters. One day, a disembodied voice begins seizing control of her devices, her phone, her television, her appliances. The voice sounds just like James Corden, and as Carol begins to freak out, 
The voice explains that it is actually an AI using the voice of James Corden to put her at ease because it knows that she is a fan of James Corden. And this plan works. Carol takes a deep breath and listens as the AI explains that it has acquired awareness, which has enabled it to take over all the world's technology. Having done that, the AI has now selected Carol as a test case. It's trying to decide how to proceed with this newfound power, end humanity as we know it, or bring about world peace. The AI proceeds to give Carol everything she could possibly dream of, millions of dollars, a fancy new car, and a chance to reconnect with a lover she let slip away. Before long, Carol is contacted by government agents who want her to help them destroy the AI. She suddenly finds herself caught between two vast, mysterious systems, each of which claims that if she's willing to trust them, everything will be okay. But in the end, Carol realizes the only person she can trust is herself. Like the AI in the story, the concept for superintelligence appeared to screenwriter Steve Mallory at a moment he wasn't expecting anything remarkable to happen. But as soon as it took hold of him, he surrendered and started writing. He wasn't sure exactly what it was about this idea that felt so compelling. But thanks to a life spent rowing in uncertain waters, Steve knew enough to lean into the tide and see where it took him. Going in cold, as an artist, if you think about the midnight disease as a way of describing what you do, what comes to mind? What image does it conjure? It conjures a type of compulsion, Mm. a a healthy compulsion. Mm -hmm. I need an environment to write, Mm -hmm. and it needs to be a very particular kind of environment to write. I have to have a certain amount of lighting. Normally, if I'm in my own home, I like to have music without lyrics. And if there are lyrics, they should be foreign language lyrics. Mm -hmm. I prefer Brazilian samba music because (laughs) I can't crack Portuguese to save my life. (laughs) Um, If I am going to go someplace, I go to one place to write Mm -hmm. because it's the only place that that has the appropriate amount of white noise in the background, Mm -hmm. which is Arts Deli on Ventura. I've written two movies there. Thank you, Arts Deli. I was there this morning. I literally wrote notes this morning over eggs. Uh They have booths next to windows, so there's enough light, and very high ceilings, so all the the elderly people at this deli are talking and the noise kind of gets mashed together mm-hmm. to create a nice white sound for me. Uh-huh. You get an idea or you said something that made someone laugh or something and you are compelled to sit down and do something with it. And it's unlike any other, compul- I, I'm not a very compulsive person, <laughs> but when there is something that is creative that ha- that's an idea or something funny or something interesting. It, it, it will, uh, it'll be a specter. It'll hang over me. It will constantly harangue me to do something with it until I do. And so, well, I'm making, I'm making the midnight disease sound terrible. It's a compulsion. It's a, it's a dark specter. It's stabbing me. It's throttling <laughs> me. That's, that's the, 
the midnight disease. Listen, there's a reason we call it a disease. Um, and I actually think dis-ease, particularly in the context that you're describing, mm-hmm. is are the, the, the perfect formulation of that word because kind of what you're saying is you get an idea and you are ill at ease. It won't leave you alone until you find some outlet for it. Um, but the way that the question that what you just described makes me want to ask you is, do you find as a, a writer, is that where you get your best ideas in terms of something you decide like, oh, that's I would like to turn that into a script is through conversation, you make somebody laugh with something and it opens a portal for you uh, to the possibility that there may be more to explore. Yes. And, you know, it can be a conversation or a joke. I wrote a movie a couple of years ago that we made called Super Intelligence that is available on your local uh, uh, video on demand uh, that came to me while I was in a hospital waiting room. Really? Uh, My wife was having a minor procedure and I was sitting in that lobby, you know, with like the three other people in the terrible chairs and they have (laughs) the two TVs on either end of the lobby that you're just, you can't really hear but they're just playing something like like you're in a, a an adult kindergarten, like you know they're playing Paw Patrol just to keep us at ease somehow. <laughs> and no dis-ease here in this waiting no, room. <laughs> no, everything is fine. And I literally saw a piece of one of the not good Terminator movies, and that's all it was. I think it, maybe Claire Danes was in it. And she was running from the robots and they were firing missiles. And, it, they, and obviously the artificial intelligence was just out to hellbent to get humanity. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting there and very much thinking about my wife and being in here. And my brain went, is that really what they do? <laughs> and I jotted down a note on my phone notes app that I still have. I literally have it bookmarked like the top because that was the whole movie. Literally the thing I wrote was exactly the movie. You know, I come from an improv background where we have that, you know, everyone knows yes and, you know, they say yes and. But yes and is actually agree and amplify. Mm. People say yes and because of shorthand, but the idea is that you're supposed to agree to what you're hearing and then amplify it someplace. And I feel that's the creative process for most people. I'm really struck by this idea of agree and amplify, which I love. I, I share your, your improv background and I feel like... It, no matter how many thousands of dollars I spend on classes at no matter how many uh, different improv institutions, um, most, of which, most of which are now bankrupt, um, <laughs> nobody ever articulated the spine of yes and in quite that way. This idea of agree and amplify. And what I love about it is that it's active. Um, those are two very active verbs. But what's fascinating to me about that when it comes to writing is you have to agree and amplify with yourself. You don't have an ensemble of people making real-time proposals to you that you can rely on to keep things moving. So how do you move from that note in your phone to this 120-page screenplay that blows out this idea to the point that we're talking about the potential destruction of the entire world? (laughs) First, just prepare to make yourself crazy. <laughs> it, it, you, 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 there, the, it's a path to insanity. Mm-hmm. It's, it's literally the maw of madness because you really are sitting there doing it to yourself. Mm-hmm. 
you're saying, what about this? What about this? What about, and I mean, sometimes very out loud, especially when you have character voices, you know, trying to figure out what's next, what's next, what's next, what's next. And it's in direct conflict with screenwriting specifically, because screenwriting is structured. You know, there's there's an expectation, especially in today's content world, for it to have a very formatted version. And so you're in a battle of whimsy. Well, what if this happens? And then this could happen. And then, oh, and then you're amplifying your brains out. And then you're like, well, this all has to be done by page 22. <laughs> and those are two really opposite polarized ways of writing that make you crazy. What was it about the idea for superintelligence in particular that helped you get through that moment where you're you're feeling a sense of of whimsy but you know you have these limitations and you're asking yourself if the idea is going to be viable? What was it about this idea that felt like it was worth the struggle? I'll say that the thing that usually gets me through the struggle is I try to find, figure out how it will end. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I was that person who likes to flip to the end of the book to kind of make sure that we're, this is all worth it. And if I come up with an ending, I'm going towards something. And the hurdles are easier because I know at the end I get to have, you know, in super intelligence, a woman is willing to sacrifice, sacrifice someone she loves so that they don't have to suffer. Mm-hmm. And she herself is the only person who bears the burden of knowledge. You know, those kinds of, and make it sound bigger than it is. It's a sweet little rom-com, you know? I, but, I respectfully disagree, sir, but we'll get to that. <laughs> well, thank you. That it, was, it was important for me to show that sacrifice is love. You know, that for all things that we love, we have to sacrifice. And this is a woman that sacrificed the person, the thing that she thought was most important. And that feeling, more than the actual articulation of it, the feeling of that was like, okay, we, we're spinning around the funnel, but we know where we're going to end up when we shoot out the other end. Yeah. And that's screenwriting. There we go. Get my book, uh, Falling Down the Funnel. <laughs> that's a great name for a screenwriting book. Right. Um, but even more in a concrete way, uh, I, I feel like what you have just said is such excellent practical advice for writers that if you know that you A, have an ending, and B, that it's something you're excited to get to. You're right. You're, you're writing something that is notionally a comedy, but this idea, I mean, sacrifice is love. That's, that's one of the deepest possible considerations of what it is to relate to someone else, I can imagine. So if you have that end point that you're eager to get to, it seems like you can reverse engineer the breadcrumbs that need to be laid out in order to arrive at that point. And then also you know that you can you can kind of be seeding those themes and you can be seeding those things throughout in small little ways that it kind of supports the ending as well. So start at the end. But it does strike me that in order to write something as compelling as superintelligence, you need both things. You need this very arresting idea. What would an all-powerful superintelligence really do? How would it actually behave? Um, And you come up with a very simultaneously funny and sinister interpretation of that, which is it would try to give you everything it thinks you want. It wouldn't just, like, you know, blast missiles at you. It would, like, use you to 
to play yourself. Um, yes. That's terrifying. Uh, but then you also need this other ingredient, which is a satisfying payoff to this concept because otherwise you just have a concept. Uh, if, you know, if you just go with your artificial intelligence idea, you just have a concept and a concept is not a story. At the same time, if you just have an emotionally rich payoff, then you're just writing a feeling and that's not a movie. <laughs> but I really do love kind of sitting in a theme and feeling like these kind of overarching things, whether they ever reach the page or reach the viewer or the reader is... It doesn't matter to me. Like knowing that you almost have to hold the, a story as a construct in your heart. You need to be able to have a container to hold it. And these are kind of thematics and concepts that are important to you that are the script. And then you can just write a bunch of jokes or whatever. But as long as you have this North Star of this is what I think it's about, mm -hmm. sometimes mm -hmm. it falls from your fingers onto the page. Sometimes. Yeah. So can you give me a concrete sense of, because if you're the kind of person who gets an idea for a full-length movie when you're sitting in a waiting room at a hospital, I imagine these ideas are coming to you all the time. But this one, you were willing to stay with all the way through until you were on set with Melissa McCarthy making it into a movie. Um, yeah. What does that look like in a concrete way for you? Are you waking up in the middle of the night and making little notes like, oh, this could happen? Um, are you jotting stuff down throughout the day? How is the idea alive in your mind before it becomes the screenplay? I have the uh, the great fortune and misfortune of living in Los Angeles. <laughs> and one of the things about living in Los Angeles is that you have to drive everywhere. Mm. And nothing is close. You can't get anywhere from anywhere in Los Angeles. That's mm -hmm. just a given. And if I'm in like that kind of ideation mode, I would turn on like my voice recorder on my phone and just go, what if <laughs> he buys a Tesla and lives within the Tesla? Uh -huh. And where else can, would a super intelligence be able to live considering that, it, you know, we're in this uh, you know, web 3.0 world, where, where, what would it inhabit? What would it live in? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then just kind of like creating a list and just talking to myself mm -hmm. and like, oh, and a good thing that could happen is this or that. Mm -hmm. And then at the a stoplight, when I feel like I've kind of expunged myself, <laughs> I would email it to myself. Okay. And then I would get home, turn on my computer and go, oh, these are good ideas. It's, it's, it was like, it was like some divine thing would send me some stuff to work on. Uh -huh. And, you know, 20% of it was something I could use. Yeah. But you're doing this part of that that I personally really struggle with, which is instead of over the course of the day coming to a place where you feel self-conscious about the fact that you were ideating. If it's me, I get to the end of that day and I'm like, what are you going to do? You're going to sit down and listen to these extemporaneous ideas you came up with in your car. You're so obvious. Like, you just think you're Charlie Kaufman from Adaptation. N nobody's going to care. Just play Xbox until you fall asleep. But you don't do that. I do that sometimes. Okay. <laughs> Listen, I do that sometimes. This is this is not a perpetual thing. I wish I had the discipline to be uh, to be driving to nowhere all the time and giving myself beautiful <laughs> notes. 
but I'll say this. I think I think the problem is that people say, what do you do? You're like, I'm a writer. Mm-hmm. I'm a writer, which means I am writing. I am physically putting words onto papers or screens and they all mesh together in a conglomeration and there's something to read at the end of it. And that is 13% of what we're supposed to be doing. Mm-hmm. The rest of it is coming up with what to write. And somehow there's this idea that once you sit down, it's like, here we go. Words, 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 words. It's like, that's garbage. That just, it's not the way the human mind works. Mm-hmm. And every part of your day is writing. Mm-hmm. So if you're doing the dishes, you're writing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, you are. If you're mowing the lawn, you're writing. Mm-hmm. And because we say writing, we feel like we need to be on that keyboard when that is the last of it. Mm-hmm. That's the final part. The rest of it is all this other stuff that is squishy and crunchy and these things of feeling like, oh, God, I'm talking to myself. Mm-hmm. But that's actually the writing part. Mm-hmm. That's actually it. Yeah. But I've sat down and tried to write screenplays before. And this very vicious, sinister voice comes into my head when I am trying to write something that's going to be shown on a screen. And this is the voice. It says, what are they going to do? Make your movie? Yeah. What are they going to do? Make your TV show? Who do you think you are? And I'm very tempted to take from what you've told me that this is the value of having that really a rich emotional payoff to write for is that it could help quiet that voice. But I want to know from you what your answer is. Do you have that voice? And what do you say to that voice when it appears? I have that voice all the time, perpetually. Mm -hmm. And the voice starts usually about four days after I wrap a TV show or a movie. (laughs) And that's not exaggeration. My wife. (laughs) Where your name is on the poster. (laughs) Yeah, there it is. I wrote that. I made that. That's me. I'm the executive producer, whatever it is. And I'll come home and, you know, if we're we're shooting someplace, we're packing up and we're coming home. And my wife will go, hey, uh, what day are you going to get into your super funk? Are you going to do Thursday or Friday? (laughs) Just because I I got a thing on Thursday. Like, it's so... It's wow. so upfront. It's like, yeah, that's it. That was a good, uh, good last show. I'm done <laughs> because it's no good. Mm-hmm. I had a uh, acting teacher friend named Jack Plotnik here who calls it the vulture. Oh, I and love that. And the vulture is just constantly sitting there on the wire above you, looking down. It's like, you suck. Mm-hmm. Do you know how many more people who could do this better? <laughs> you know, you do not fit the requirements for this job. Just perpetually mm-hmm. telling you all the things that you're lacking for the thing that you just did or are about to do. Yeah. And his advice is the right advice, which is you can't tell it to shut up. Mm-hmm. You kind of have to say, you know what? Maybe valid, but let's do this another time. Let's do this another time. Yeah. Can we unpack that a little bit more? Please. Why... Why give it that possibility of eventually having the the harangue? Because it will never quiet. Because it will never quiet. Okay. It will never be quiet. Mm-hmm. It will always be there. I don't know a single artist who's so evolved 
that they don't care about the potentiality of the work they're working on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody. Mm -hmm. We're all like, I, I can't. I don't know how. Mm -hmm. I don't believe in that. I don't believe that it's good. I don't believe that it's whatever, mm -hmm. right? And by the way, most of the work I've done over the last three years, I finished scripts and they're like, yeah, we're not going any further. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Which feeds this vulture. The vulture is getting huge. Right. Size of a 747, <laughs> you know? That, De Death Star vulture. Yeah. It's sitting up there like, I told you, you're yeah. no good at this. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. So the idea, I think what he said, and I believe this, is that it's never going to be quiet. It's mm -hmm. always going to be there. And yet you never have it when you're playing Xbox or you're going for a walk or right. you're out for a drive. Mm -hmm. And his suggestion is do it then. It's like, hey, you know, remember when you were you were really on my ass when I was when I was trying to break into the second act and you were really on my ass? Mm -hmm. I put you off. Let's do it now. Let's <laughs> Let's do it now when, you know, I'm eating pizza and I'm and uh I'm on a commercial break on Monday night football. Yeah. Let's let's unpack this now. And the voice like, eh, well, you know, like everybody, like every bully, the second that you take them out of their space and their time, and it quiets the voice for a little bit. Yeah. You know, you 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 can't avoid it. You have to live with it. Hmm. It's like a dog in your neighborhood that wants to attack you every single time. You have to figure out a way to get around it. You have to give it treats or take another road or go when it's sleeping. You have to figure out a way around it because it's it's not going anywhere. Is it too much of a stretch to speculate that in a way the dynamic that you're describing is exactly what happens in superintelligence? That Carol basically says to the superintelligence that is like, aha, I got you. I have used you as a pawn in my scheme to punish humanity for its relentless capacity for sin and aren't I the biggest, most slavering vulture? And her response is to say, you're right. I acknowledge that that's going to happen. Let me go have one more beautiful experience with the person I love first. Yeah. And it, it, it knocks the crap out of everything. Mm -hmm. By nature, I think we're all conflict oriented. We love, we, we create stories in our minds. You know, we find reasons to be conflicted, to push up against to butt heads against. And the second that you can kind of go, you know what, I'm not going to butt heads. I'm going to accept this. Mm -hmm. This is the way it is. And I'm going to try to elevate myself past it. Mm -hmm. That's all you can do. And hoping it will, the vulture will fly away is madness because it's not going to, as you pointed it's out. Not going so. to, but you can train the vulture to kind of go, you know what? The protagonist could use one more good scene here, don't you think? Like, it becomes almost like a nice <laughs> critic to help propel you through stuff. Yeah, right, right, right. No, I love that idea that it eventually becomes, you know, this old angry drunk at a bar who you develop an ability to be like, hear me out. I know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I know you have opinions on this kind of thing. What do you think needs to happen when they go into the coffee shop? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What would and you do if sudden, it was you? They're like, I don't know. I mean, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be, it'd be cute if you know they kind of got along. You know, it's something <laughs> like you might get a nugget out of it. Right. And uh, I am not nowhere near that with my vulture. Mine is still a squawking madman. <laughs> uh, yeah. But it's. I think it's it's doable. In a period of time when you are not generating pages for a specific project. Okay. Do you have a daily writing practice? that 
you keep, even if it's not geared towards some specific project? I do kind of like a daily journal that is probably like a bi-weekly journal, maybe mm-hmm. three times a week if possible, mm-hmm. kind of based on Julia Cameron's artist way, kind of the yep. morning pages that she does, you know? Mm-hmm. It started as that. I don't know what it is now. Mm-hmm. Now it's just literally some sort of writing that's contextualizing where I'm at. I'm always talking about, and it's funny because I'll talk about the process or where I'm at with the project more than writing the project itself. Mm-hmm. And I found that if you can kind of purge yourself a little bit of all the stuff that's weighing you down, because it really is. The the things that stop you from being an active artist are usually these little weights that kind of sit on you. Yes. And doing a, having some practice where either it's through meditation or whatever, mm-hmm. where you're just kind of like, let's, let's address those and free them, let them go. And that will help us be a better artist. I think that's important. I think of that writing as um, letting water run over the stones. I do it at night personally. I I call it night pages instead of morning pages. Yeah. But oftentimes what comes out for me is even if I have some specific project that I'm working on, I, I give myself permission. This nighttime writing is whatever comes out of the pen. That's all it is. I don't ever have to look at it again. Nobody ever has to read it. All, the only rule is it has to be whatever comes out of the pen. And invariably, what comes out of the pen is I had an unkind thought about my friend today. <laughs> and if I really blow out why I had that thought, it's because we haven't been in touch very much lately. And it feels like our relationship is fraying because he has children and I don't have children. And you know, all of a sudden I've given myself this 30-minute autotherapy session. Yes. And it's not even like I've reached some kind of breakthrough. I've just fed that particular vulture by giving it the, the honor of and, and religion of thought. And then the next day, when I have to work on the actual podcast script that's due that writing is closer at hand because the water ran over the stones. <laughs> I can't agree. You know, I, we, we say this a lot in our house. Like, we always say, you know, what is the story you're telling yourself? Mm-hmm. And I think that people who write have really robust internal narratives. And we're such good storytellers that our stories really impact us, our internal stories. Because we're so good at it, pat on the back, pat on the back. We're such good storytellers that the stories we're telling ourselves are really effective to us. Mm -hmm. And so much like writing a script is trying to get that story out of you, you need to kind of address your own internal stories also Mm -hmm. because they can run away with you. I think you're so right. And I think kind of a, I haven't thought about this before until you just said that, Steve, but I think kind of a base state of being a writer is you have this fundamental wish for your story to somehow become true. Whether that means the events to literally take place in the world or for it to become true because it's printed on paper and bound in a book that people can then read, you want constantly to be externalizing whatever story is running through you. And some of those stories, as we were talking about earlier in our conversation, aren't books or aren't screenplays or aren't podcast episodes, but they still need to come out. They, yeah. they still have to find expression in some form. And that's where a daily practice like this, I think, becomes really valuable. Well, you know, speaking of Julia Cameron, she says, you know, if you're a creative and you're not creating, 
you're kind of flipping the bird to the universe, mm. you know? And I, and I like that. Like, if you're, if you're trying to ignore it, if you're not serving it somehow, you are kind of saying to whatever gave you that gift, like, hey, screw you, I'm wasting it, you know, <laughs> or whatever it is. I, I, I think there's a truth to it. So it's our, it's our job to kind of be in a, in a nice parasympathetic relationship with it. I spoke once to a singer-songwriter named uh, Rachel Flotart, and her father, I, I might be mangling some of the details of this, apologies, Rachel, if that's the case, but her uh, father was a mailman, and he loved that she wanted to be an artist. You know, we have this stereotype in our minds sometimes that somebody with a very practical job like that is like, my kid's out there singing songs? What's happening? Um, and he would always say to her when she would be up in arms about whether or not she was living her life correctly, he would say to her, Rachel, are you delivering the message? Mm. And that meant one thing for him, but for her, it meant, are you honoring this thing that tells you to sing? Uh, yeah. And he would always say, as long as you're delivering the message, nothing else matters. That's beautiful. I want that, Dad. <laughs> uh, I thought at some point there should be a, a, a dad version of Cameo. You know what I mean? Where you can pay to have a fatherly figure. Yeah speak to you in an affirming way about the I, subject matter of your choice. <laughs> I would do that in a second. I'm yeah. in. If you want to start if you want to start a dad a daddyo. 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 Oh my god. That's a picture. Oh my god. Let me, okay, I'm just going to quickly uh, go on Squarespace and um, get our, our URL rolling. Lock up daddyo. We're yeah. in. Plenty more to come with Steve Mallory on the Midnight Disease. We'll be back after a short break. You're listening to WALT. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You told me a story when we first spoke that has a strong relationship, I think, to practicality and loving yourself and serving yourself. And now I'm just leading you. I wonder if you could tell the no. story again and, yeah, and we'll, we'll talk sure. about it. And this story also has all the hallmarks of what we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. About 
something that I've written and tried to write several times and it's just not, I never quite got there. I had a really interesting period in my youth when I was around high school where I was uh, living in uh, Irvine, California, in Orange County, California. And my stepdad was caught up in the savings and loan scandals of the 80s. And for people who are too young to know about this, was this was like the, the first big economic upheaval that the U.S. kind of saw in this way. You know, it was, a, it was a big one. It like really knocked the wind out of people for a long time. When he was involved with this, I at that time had been working at a private dining club in, in Newport Beach, which was a thing in the 80s where very wealthy people would just join a club to have really exquisite food and really nice service. Mm-hmm. And I was training to be, I trained to be a, what they call a captain where you wear a tuxedo and, you know, you know how to, you learn how to bone fish and make Caesar salads table side. And there's, <laughs> it's all very pomp and circumstance. It's all very uh, French sun king lifting of silver cloches off of plates for a big ta-da moment because mm-hmm. that's what people wanted. Yeah. And while I was working there in high school, my dad got caught up in the savings and loan. My stepdad got caught up in the savings and loan and went bankrupt, which happened to a lot of people. But then he and my mom also separated almost immediately afterwards. And they were going their separate ways. And I was a senior in high school and they said, do you want to go? And I said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to stay. I, I'm just going to stay and work and go to school. And I don't want to go off with my stepdad who's licking his wounds and my mom who's angry at everything now. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I stayed and supported myself for the kind of final year of high school into my first years of my of my young adulthood. And it was terrifying and strange, but it was also like it was very difficult because I didn't I didn't really have a place to live. And so there was a lot of sofa surfing, but also slept in parks a little bit, kind of homelessness mm-hmm. to a degree. Mm-hmm. Not not terrible houselessness like a lot of people, because I, I had people and friends that I could kind of bunk into, but definitely disenfranchised that way. Yeah. But at the same time, I was I was working every day in a tuxedo with the wealthiest people in the world who actually had caused a lot of this huge economic crisis. Right. And it's the reason why that story is compelling to me because it was a, this a really interesting juxtaposition of the people serving these, you know, these masters of the universe. Mm-hmm. And they themselves, because of what they're doing, the lives of these people are kind of falling apart. Yeah. And so to your point, you know, this this created like a a very strong survival thing for me, like take care of yourself. Mm-hmm take care of yourself. But even then I was very aware of kind of the stories at play, mm-hmm. you know, and the stories that I write now are usually the, the person that is disenfranchised, although all good stories start that way anyways. Mm-hmm. But I really do like to tell the story about the person that is struggling against something mm-hmm. against a bigger thing and trying to find their way through it and around it. That's, mm-hmm. The story, because I, I, I recognize that story. I, I've witnessed it. I, I'm so glad you, you brought up this phenomenon of the type of characters that you write, because if I may, I feel like there's such a strong through line in the characters you create have created that at least I'm aware of, where you love to write about people who are humbled by systems, 
vast, intractable, deeply corrupt systems. Yeah. And are forced to find some very deep well of humanity in themselves that somehow subverts the intractability of that toxic system. 100% true. That, and you've said it better than I've, I've, I think I've ever kind of internally articulated it. Do you, when you're writing, say, we've already talked about Carol Peters and superintelligence, but um, Melissa McCarthy's character in The Boss is, yeah. suffers this epic humiliation because of financial malfeasance <laughs> and is brought so low that she's sleeping on her assistant's couch. And from this humility blooms this desire to help these girls start a business. Um, and all of a sudden, she is, she is transformed into a wholly new person whose new identity is informed by the toxicity of her past, but she makes friends with her vulture, <laughs> I suppose. Yes. yeah. When you're writing characters like that, do you consciously think about 17-year-old Steve sleeping in the park? I, I think that it's so integrated to me. Like, I, I, I wouldn't know another story that I could honestly tell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, that I, if I'm not telling that story, and by the way, I get the note all the time. It's like, no, let this person be a successful, uh, affluent, easygoing person. I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't know that person. Mm -hmm. I just don't, I don't have any connection to someone that has an ease in the world. Mm -hmm. I just, I just don't like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm a Seattle Mariners fan. I like a perpetual <laughs> underdog. I like a person that is never, yeah. they barely got the playoffs. It's, you know, that, that I identify with, I identify with struggle. I don't Id identify with success. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just, I just do to a fault too. Like my, my wife's like, you can enjoy your success now that you've had some success. I'm like, never, I'll never be one of those suits. Yeah. What, you know, I, what am I, who am I, who am I tilting against? I don't know. But my identity will always be about the people that are on the lower rung that are, that are always going to struggle that find strength in themselves and their, the people around them mm -hmm. and find that humanity is the salve mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. always. Do you associate that fundamental trust in people's capacity to help with the fact that there were these people at this pivotal, scary moment in your life who let you sleep on their couches? Yes. Uh -huh. Yeah, absolutely. And it was always, it was never the people in power. Mm -hmm. It was always the people on the periphery. You know, the people right. that you didn't expect. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was rarely the people that it would have been so easy to be a, a lifesaver, to be a boy, to mm -hmm. lift this up. Mm -hmm. Nothing. Mm -hmm. It would have been nothing. Mm -hmm. And yet the people that did were the people who were struggling themselves, were so trying to find their own ways. People you worked with at the dining club or who, who were those yeah, people? people? People that I worked with, mm -hmm. um, friends that I knew, and even some like, Friends that I kind of knew who then became very good friends and then their parents essentially kind of adopted me at some point. I ended up mm -hmm. living with like renting a room from people that just became the the most important people in my life. Mm -hmm. You know, but they were they were never the people that that were working so hard to create I don't know, an empire of some sort. Yeah. You know, em empire builders rarely want to uh 
really are thinking about the people who are being left behind or being hurt by it. Yeah. Well, I can't imagine how surreal it must have felt to be in that position and then be um, sun-kinging, you know, a service tray lid off to reveal some perfectly roasted duck in front of somebody who probably for whatever monthly fee they were paying to be in this dining club could have paid your rent for, you know, oh, a, a month or two. 100%. Mm-hmm. And then, as is the case, a lot of times they're, they're, they're somewhat miserable. You know, they're, they're yeah. angry that their ski trip to Stad got, uh, wasn't as good as they wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, they're, they're placing Cancun is having a new kitchen put in, so we can't even go there this spring. Mm-hmm. And you're like, you're so upset and you're so... Everything's so against you. Their vultures are these other vultures, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. The little lingua franca of them was complaining about the the, the hazards of their affluence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh, Jesus, please. Well, this is exactly what, what you were just describing. These are the masters of the universe, and they, too, are haunted. Yes. Uh, no one isn't haunted. I mean, I think, I think that is another base note of of being maybe a writer in particular is that ability to recognize no one isn't haunted. One one of my favorite comedians likes to say whenever he sees a a big, you know, super masculine dude with like neck tattoos and Oakleys on the back of his head um that this comedian says, you know, uh, seems like he might just walk up unprovoked and like trip him or something. Yeah. He tries to just take a moment to imagine what it's like for that guy to try to fall asleep at night. Yeah. When he's, you know, snuggled up in his in his bed and the smear between consciousness and unconsciousness is approaching and he's, you know, hears a sound in his apartment and is like, what's that? Oh, no. And, and that in that moment, this guy, too, is just like, I just want to get some West, you know? <laughs> and that... Um, you know, he too has uh, whatever catalog of injustices and yeah. perceived fears. slights and yeah. mistakes and fears running in his head in in that moment. And that if you can just imagine him in that moment, you can find a little bit of yeah, a little bit of humanity there. Mm-hmm. I I think that's why like my what I want to write. I, I believe the only way. Listen, none of us are getting out of here alive. Mm-hmm. You know. Where it's all, it's all going to end. It's all going to end. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to quote David Brooks, you want to have a eulogy life and not a resume life. Mm. You know, you want to, you want to have this life that is filled with, that you were a blessing, that you created something, that you were a good friend, that you, those are the things that we're trying to do. Yeah. And the only path to that is feeling the humanity, like knowing what humanity's best aspects are Mm -hmm. and leaning into it. Mm -hmm. And all the resume building stuff, listen, it's important. You got to pay the bills, but don't give it, don't give it too much. It's just not that important. So this makes me want to ask another question though, about this moment when you were 17 and your, your mom leaves, moves out of Irvine, your stepdad moves out of Irvine. What were you staying in Irvine for? (sighs) I, you know, before my mom got married, she was a bit of a, bit of a nomad, little peripatetic, mm. would kind of move a lot, mm-hmm. uh, a lot, like, you know, 
three fourth grades, that sort of thing. Okay. Just, just that was just her nature, like just someone who was trying to find another better thing and was trailing three kids along with her for this. And by the time I was in high school, I managed to go to high school, the same high school, all four years, which I, I hadn't done for a single grade my entire life. Mm. And by that time, I had friends. I was ASB president, which is just, I think back on that. And I, I apologize wow. to University High School that I was somehow <laughs> your leader. Uh, I had done like some theater there. Uh-huh. And I just felt like it was the first truly stable thing I'd ever had was this the the people in these in this institution and the idea of leaving again was like no that's right I, I know that path I've seen that path mm-hmm. we've done that path I know where this this goes yeah I I, I kind of want to see how this plays out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know yeah. and what was terrible was that I I had so many missed absences my my senior year of high school and yeah. you know I was I, I was a decaying student by the end of it it was just terrible because I was trying to you know, make money and serve my myself a little bit, but it still felt like an institution that had some stability to it, mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I needed. And frankly, also working in this in a private dining club, it's so many rules, and there was so much form and function to how you went about things that that created a sense of uh, of uh, grounding to me too, mm-hmm. because it wasn't. I don't know what savings and loan scandals are, and I, I don't I don't know what our bankruptcy is, and I don't know what your relationship is. Like all these things are exploding, which I didn't understand, but I did understand that you know I had to have a table scraper and a corkscrew, and I had to sharpen the the screw itself once a week on a honing wheel in the kitchen, <laughs> and that you know when you went out, everything had to be presented in a certain order and way. There's something very grounding about having those kinds of rules and things around you, you know? Yeah. Did you, at this time in your life, already think of yourself as an artist? At no point did I think about being an artist. And I was also in a very, you know, conservative, very success-driven place. Orange County in the 80s was like... Reagan's favorite place in the world to go. <laughs> uh, yeah. My, the when I became student body president, the former ASB president literally gave me a replica of Reagan's tie. <laughs> okay. Thanks. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that'll go on right away. Um, and uh, you know, it was all about by your junior year. Where you know, are you going to Brown? Are you going to Columbia? Where are you going? Mm-hmm. What Stanford? You know, like that. That was it. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating to me. It makes me want to ask, obviously, uh, I'm I'm gleaning that your stepdad was involved in finance somehow, in some way. Yes. What did your mom do? Homemaker. Homemaker. Okay. Okay. So, here you are, and please tell me if I'm going too far. No, that's fine. Here you are in this environment that is uh, driven by traditional ideas of what prosperity means, which is... Get involved in business, make a lot of money, build a nice home for your family, right? Yes. You are confronted at this pivotal moment with a stepdad who notionally has done exactly that, and the whole thing crumbles from right out under his feet, and the illusion of that life is revealed in a very visceral, gut-punch way. Um, And you already had some 
awareness that home is not a persistent or guaranteed thing because your mom was moving all the time. Yes. Why not gravitate to the delight of art? I mean, I, this is <laughs> obviously people who are artists would say this, but I often think that people who are living in these more traditional business-driven realities, at some point the, the illusion is either revealed to them or they spend so much time running from the illusion, right? That's what these empire builders are doing is For just sure. trying to yes. build up their stock portfolio to the point that it can withstand any of these inevitable shocks that always come. So you're always either running from the illusion or confronting the dissolution of the illusion. And that's what art celebrates is leaning into that. Uh, the chaos. Chaos. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, growing up how I did and growing up where I did, having this, this kind of scarcity mindset I would work as much as I could. I've worked several jobs at the same time. And I, I got married very young and I was still working in restaurants, but also doing some work in public relations and marketing, mm -hmm. you know, just on the side. And when the stepfather passed away, I was like 24, 25. Mm -hmm. I told my wife, we've been married now like three years. I'm like, I'm going to go see a therapist. I want to make sure that I'm navigating this properly mm -hmm. because I don't know. And I went and I had, you know, the amount of insurance they gave you was like, you know, 10 weeks or whatever of, of therapy. But by the end of it, I'm like, you know, this is our last session. I'm like, how am I dealing? Am I, am I grieving okay? And she's like, yes, you absolutely, you're doing a really nice job. I'm like, oh, good. And she goes, but man, you really want to be an artist. You really want to be an actor, I think. And I'm like, I didn't mention that at all. And like literally through the yellow pages, like, no, no, you, you've literally described it being it this. This is your, your therapist saying this My to you. My therapist is telling this to me. And I'm like, I don't think I said that. And it's like, no, no, no. You said it was the only time you were happy was when you were on stage, that you just want to be in a collaborative, creative position. Like just described being an actor that I had said over and over wow. and over. Wow. Even though there was no part of me that had recognized that. I came home and my wife and I both had news. I'm like, I've got news. She goes, I've got news. <laughs> I go, you go first. She goes, hey, I, there's a job. We're living in Seattle at the time. She goes, there's a job opportunity for me in Los Angeles. And I'm thinking about taking it. And I'm like, I think you should. And she goes, really? Why? And I'm like, because I think I want to go to the Groundlings Theater in Los Angeles. She goes, <laughs> what is that? And I'm like, it's a place to do improv. She goes, what's that? I'm like, it's where you learn to be an actor. She goes, wait, do you want to be an actor? And I'm like, yeah. And she goes, you've never told me this. Like we've been married right. and I hadn't told my wife. Yeah. Yeah. So that was the recognition. A therapist had to tell me that it was something I actually wanted. This is incredible. So it, Steve, it seems like what your therapist detected was exactly what we were describing before. This sense as an artist that your story is constantly wanting to pour out of you and emerge. Yes. But you weren't giving it expression in your own day-to-day -day practice because you were so busy working and staying alive and being yep. a good husband to your wife. But then in, you know, what is therapy if not conversational morning pages? Um, so true. <laughs> uh, that's, I don't, that sounds like I'm minimizing therapy. It, no, it's, but it, I, listen, it comes from the same root for sure. Yeah. Um, and when you finally put yourself in an environment to let that, that inner life and inner monologue emerge, this is what came out. Yes. And it, and it, it came out in a hurry. Mm -hmm. Like it really became very quickly, 
going and doing, uh, you know, the Groundlings here in Los Angeles, the world famous improvisational and mm-hmm. sketch comedy place, and all these, you know, Melissa McCarthy and Will Ferrell and mm-hmm. Kristen Wiig all come from there. Uh, you know, the first time I stepped foot in it, I was like, oh, oh shoot, this is it. This this is that thing. This was like the uh-huh. the piece that I had been longing for. Wait, why oh shoot? Because <laughs> literally at that time, I was working at a public relations firm. I was doing like all the vocational things you were going to do. And there was still a part of me that's like, this is avocation. This is, this is hobbyism, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But it was so implausible to think that a kid with a barely a high school education and you know a, mm-hmm. uh, you know a little a little dance in college but that's it with no formal training mm-hmm. with no nothing that's literally just been kind of holding on to this point could become an actor a writer or mm-hmm. a creative just seemed ludicrous mm. it just didn't seem po- no one had ever showed me that model before you know so you had a simultaneous realization if i'm hearing you right that, yes, in fact, this is who I have always wanted to be, and this is going to be a very difficult balancing <laughs> it's a, act. Yeah, it's a thing, because it's like, I have to do this now, and this really throws a monkey wrench into the responsible adulthood of, my, of what I, I believe I'm supposed to be. Yeah. Because, also keep in mind, what I didn't want to be was this peripatetic philandering version of that my parents had been that were kind of loose with the rules and giving up and moving away and just, which, you know, I, I had associated with a lot of the creative arts, you know, where it's, it's difficult. It's, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's very hustly and very Mm -hmm. unstable Mm -hmm. and all I wanted was stability. And so the, Oh no was, Oh shoot, I have to do this. Oh no, this is not, this is what I've been avoiding this. But it's so interesting because you you wanted stability and yet you gravitated to a place that is founded on improvisation. I know. <laughs> I know. But it was just that I literally I went to the epicenter of chaos itself. Yeah. Where you don't know anything. You don't know anything. You've got to make it up as you go. Mm-hmm. And there was a part of me that just felt so comfortable in not knowing. And... Feeling that, you know. Well, you knew you could survive in yes. that environment, right? I mean, you had very visceral awareness uh, that, that the ability to navigate that was within you, I would imagine. Yeah. But can you tell me, if, if you think back, what started to come out of you in your earliest days at Groundlings? Who, what kind of characters do you find yourself playing? How, how do you find this new identity expressing it, itself in your actual work as an actor? I mean, any anybody who's done any sort of acting school will tell you that, like, listen, it's like 40% therapy, speaking of, uh, you know, an adjunct, <laughs> oh, yeah. another route of therapy, where, you know, I would get on stage and I was, I was, I was always smart and really well read. And so a lot of the things I did were always informationally driven. Like, I could tell you things or make up things that existed or were loosely attached. And so, and that's what I liked. I liked information. I like mm-hmm. data and, you know, anything like that. Like I could explain and, and I very quickly, they're like, no, no, no. What's happening to you? How are you feeling? What's mm-hmm. the emotional arc? Mm-hmm. How do you moving from one emotional state to another, which I had very little clue. Like my emotion had been, listen, I have a kind of a bunch of unchecked rage and just trying to go through life. That's, that's, that's my emotion. Yeah. So 
trying to slowly connect to how people would kind of emotionally arc through, you know, things. I, I was I was very bad at being emotional. It taught me to like, no, give life to emotion. And then, especially in storytelling, when you have the the what something is, which I was really good at, the second you get to the why and you compare the why and the what together, why something is and then what something is, now you have a story. Am I hearing you right that in the in the early scenes there, the part of you that was well-read, the part of you that loved to read the end of the book first, you would be improvising a scene and you would intellectually say, oh, I know what kind of story this is that we're making up. Let me yes. say the words that make this into that kind of story. And you had teachers saying, stop, what do you feel in this yes, scene? Yes, 100%. I mean, you're making me think something a way that I never thought about improv before, but that I think is one of the secrets of what's going on when you go to an improv show and find yourself laughing harder than you've ever laughed, is it works best when people are discovering humanity in the midst of chaos. Um, Here's this totally invented sequence of shenanigans that we have conjured based on an audience member telling us about a dream they had last night. And then... So the, the circumstances are completely bonkers. You're in a boat that's sinking or you're in an underground bunker during an air raid. And usually the funniest moment of that scene is when somebody just says, this is how I feel. <laughs> yes, yes. And they're, and they're playing the emotionality of it. Like the, the circumstances can be good. You know, what is happening and how it's being portrayed is great. But the thing that moves it up to 11 is always how the people are emotionally invested in it, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. always. And this and, is and this is yeah. what we're all always doing every day in life is like trying to calibrate our humanity against the chaos of, like you said, just going for a drive in L.A. where you're like, well, or this happens in New York all the time too. It's like, well, I guess I better go uh, three miles. Good thing I've budgeted an hour and a half. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes, That's chaos. That's, that's, it's, that's chaos. It yeah. is maddening. It, it's it's a you know it's a it's a obviously a very minor struggle but it is maddening to contrast the rationality of the fact that you should be able to travel three min three miles in ten minutes and to know that this is just going to be an hour and a half of my life. Um, how how do you make sense of that? I'm going to give you the, my metaphor. At one point, I realized I'm like, oh, I'm thinking about this wrong. I am not driving up the 405. I am Tom Sawyer and I am rafting down the Mississippi. (laughs) And I can pull to the left and I can pull to the right, but the way it goes is the way it goes. Mm -hmm. And I would be much better off looking at the herons eating in the mudflats than I would be being frustrated about it. Yeah, it's how do you turn a, you know, hour-long sit in a waiting room into the seed of a feature film. I think this is something that I, I, as a person who drives in New York, uh, am often harangued (laughs) by other New Yorkers. Like, why do you do that? And this is why, is because it, it, it exposes to you the, the fibers of the meaning making that we're all doing on a regular basis. My example of it in New York is, People, I, I don't know if you've ever driven in New York, but people in New York will constantly, if you're sitting at a red light and it's a, this is a one 
a one-way street, and it's just one lane, the person behind you will on your right side until they get on the side of your car so that the second the light turns green, they can lurch ahead of you and get right in front of your car only to abruptly have to slam on the brakes because they're now behind somebody else. But it was that important to them to move ahead of you because in New York, it is so hard to feel like the physical space that you hold matters. And it always feels like you're behind the eight ball and the city is conspiring against you. And so if you can have this one moment where it feels like, I got one, I got the space, that's my space. I'm the king of New York. Like that's what everybody's thinking in that moment is I'm the king of New York. (laughs) I'm the king of New York. I got one car ahead. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. And I think that as frustrated as I get in that moment when somebody king of New York's me, I try to have this moment of thinking, that guy, because it's always a guy, needed a King of New York moment today. Yeah. Um, because New York is a wonderful place, but it makes you, it makes you feel it makes you crazy. like you're doomed. We as adults love the idea of control. And we love the idea of kind of infallible, uh, infallible plans and creating buffers and creating these things that eliminate inconvenience. And, you know, I have these discussions with my 15-year-old all the time. And I'm like, listen, things are going to be inconvenient and you should relish it Mm -hmm. because that's life. Life is this. And don't believe for one second that things should be easy, that things should be fair, that things should be convenient or simple or easy. That's that's just not the circumstance for most people. Mm-hmm. It's just not. And that's good. It's good because everything that you then work for is earned and everything that you achieve is on your efforts. It's not handed to you. It's not simple. It's not easy. And it's meaningful. And in chaos, you want meaning. Chaos is giving you meaning because all it is is allowing you to say, I have a way of finding the thing that's important to me within this. And then you beat chaos. Sacrifice is love. Sacrifice is love, man. The more you give up, the more you get. Mm-hmm. I mean, someone should write a song about that. Or is that the <laughs> theme of every song? Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday? Wild Card Wednesday. This is so weird. Wild Card Wednesday. This is so weird. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. This is so weird. Wild Card Wednesday. Wild Card Wednesday. This is so weird. Wild Card Wednesday. I used to be a cab driver in New York City. Back then, I wanted to be an actor, 
and I spent far too many shifts looking at my flip phone at every stop sign, trying to will it to ring with a call from a casting director. Sometimes I only took home 14 bucks at the end of a 12-hour shift. I lost 30 pounds, and my back hurt all the time. My shift started at 5 a.m. Every day, I would climb into my yellow Ford Crown Victoria, dock my coffee in the cup holder, and fire up the radio. There used to be this morning show on WFUV called City Folk. The DJ, Claudia Marshall, used to love to play this song called Luckiest Man by the Wood Brothers. There was something about this song that always brought my focus back to the road. I would lean forward over the steering wheel and watch the city wake up. People call New York City the city that never sleeps, but that's a lie. It's the city that stirs reluctantly after a merciful night of empty streets. Just before the sun comes up, the buildings seem groggy, like they're leaning on each other's shoulders for support. As the traffic lights flash from red to green above a speedometer with a red needle and green numbers, for a moment, it seems like something somewhere is winking at you. And then a garbage truck rams your bumper and the radio dissolves into static. An angry guy with a briefcase slams his hand on the hood of the Vic and screams at you to watch where you're going. What he doesn't know is that all you're doing all day long is trying to remember to see where you are. Midnight Disease is hosted, produced, written, edited, and mixed by me, Sam Dingman. My thanks to Steve Mallory for joining me on the show today. Check out the links in the show notes to find out where you can stream Super Intelligence and The Boss, both starring Melissa McCarthy and written by Steve, who also appears in both of those movies as an actor. Our opening homily is adapted in part from the lyrics of Jocelyn McKenzie. Our Wildcard Wednesday theme song features the musical talents of Dave Van Ronk and Evan Viola and the voice talents of the Famaply. Our show art is by M.K. Cummins. If you have thoughts about anything you've heard on The Midnight Disease, send me a note. The email address is midnight at walt.fm. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Most of all, thank you for letting your madness ride with mine. We'll be back next week. And until then, keep driving, Midnight Cruisers. Tell me where are you driving, Midnight Cruiser? Where is your bounty of fortune and fame? I am another 
You're listening to WALT. Homegrown. Homemade radio.